Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the New Books Network's Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery channel. I'm Steve Beitler. My guest today has written an important book on America's longest war, The War on Drugs. Earlier this year, Reaction Books published Opium's Orphans, the 200-year history of the war on drugs by Pierre Kekay. Pierre, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Steve, and thanks to the New Books Network for organizing this podcast and providing me with the opportunity to speak on the subject, which is an important subject to me. Pierre is an associate at Hughes Hall at the University of Cambridge. His research focuses on the intersection of international relations and culture, ideology, religion, and social issues. His two earlier books have examined the impact of ideas and beliefs on global events. For many Americans and others, the phrase war on drugs brings to mind two things. First is President Richard Nixon's declaration of the war in 1971. Second are images of law enforcement people in front of huge stacks of illegal drugs, promising that this drugs haul would make a real dent in the illicit trade. Pierre's new book puts these images into a challenging historical framework. It shows, for example, how the drug war was about 150 years old when Richard Nixon made his declaration. Opium's Orphans locates the true roots of the drug war in China and India and the British Empire's aspirations for both. It shows how policies based on the properties of opium have been applied over two centuries to disparate substances. In addition, it describes how a global effort long led by the United States to eliminate drugs at their sources has had unplanned consequences, economic, political, and social, while falling far short of its stated goals. This is a complex story with many actors and lots of twists and turns. We're fortunate to have a superb guide to help us through this history. Pierre, let's start at the beginning. How did you come to write Opium's Orphans? Well, quite simply, it's, it's, a, it's a book on a big topic that hasn't been covered before. Uh, the idea came out of earlier research interests, and as usual, there's always a, a, a little bit of serendipity to it. Uh, but I, I soon realized that um, it just hadn't been covered properly, and for this for various reasons. As, as you said yourself, people just commonly assume that the war on drugs is um, either something that began with Richard Nixon, or if it began before that, has been an American led exercise, if not a purely American exercise. And that just isn't the case. Um, the war on drugs began was from the very beginning, was an inter- international exercise. Um, it did, um, it did uh, benefit, if that's the right word, from significant American input. But, but, but drug prohibition comes from international treaties, international conditions, and domestic legislations, including in the U.S., have followed from these treaties, not the other way around. There's a a misconception there, which in turn affects um, our vision of the long, what I call the long war on drugs, how we've come up with the present anti-narcotics order. Second, so why hasn't hasn't the subject been been treated um, to date. 
part of it is because for historians, this is a recent, relatively recent discipline. Researching drugs and drug legislation has only been something that's interested historians for the last 30, 40 years at the very most. And so we've had histories looking at domestic conditions. We've had histories looking at international settings over limited time periods, and they're all extremely valuable and interesting. But nobody's really looked at the global picture over a sufficiently long period of time, in my opinion. And that, doing that, uh, alters our view of uh, the war on drugs and, and the current system that we have today, narcotics prohibition. And then finally, I mean, the last thing is obviously it's, it's an acutely relevant topic, particularly in the U.S. with the appalling opioid epidemic, which uh, has had a, it's just an, inc- an, an incredibly tragic death toll and is still going on, amazingly. And that's tightly connected to the war on drugs, in my opinion. Uh, so in a nutshell, that's you know how I came to, to the topic. I, I came to it originally tangentially, as historians often do, uh, but then I really felt pulled and sucked into it, if you like. And we'll get back to the connection with the opiate epidemic in a few minutes, um, but I, I wanted to circle back and ask you, is there a key theme or a takeaway from the book that you would want readers to... Uh, to leave the book having understood or learned. Yes, absolutely, there is. Uh, And I'm glad you mentioned that it is a convoluted story. It is a convoluted story, as all 200-year histories are, but but at the end of the day, there is a simple takeaway, uh, which is that drug prohibition or the anti-narcotics system that we have today was not built on scientific premises, but on political premises, and is the result of a particular... Uh, and in many ways unpredictable and an accidental political and international process. And that has, of course, all sorts of implications, because the system we have was built on a number of treaties and, and laws deriving from these treaties to regulate the opium trade and the trade in opiates, so derivatives from opium, which are mainly morphine and heroin. Of course, there are more, especially now, but we are talking about opium originally, accessorily uh, morphine and heroin. And so we have this system that, that's built on treaties and laws and regulations, an entire approach designed to regulate opiates, which are a particular class of drugs on which other drugs have been just purely tagged along. The first one was cocaine, the second marijuana. And then later on, we've had amphetamines, we've had hallucinogens such as LSD and so on and so on, ecstasy and so on and so on. But the point is we have a drug control that tends to treat all drugs like opiates, or we might, might, might say we have a drug control system that tends to treat all drugs like heroin, and all drugs aren't heroin. That's the point. But the reason we have that is, uh, is, is that the, our system is the result of a long political process and, and not a scientific blank slate approach, as, as you know, people might guess it to be. So I'm I'm sure that many of our listeners have heard about the opium wars, but may not know a lot about them. Could you uh, talk about the significance of these conflicts as perhaps the opening chapter of the drug war? Yes, absolutely. That's where the story starts. I hadn't heard about the, but I didn't know very much about the opium wars at the beginning either. I, apart from the name, it's like, oh yeah, the opium wars. What were they again? Uh, so there were two opium wars. Uh, they both took place in the 19th century. The background was that China, at the time the Chinese Empire, had uh, forbidden opium, banned opium as a drug domestically. It was faced with fast rising, a fast rising population of people who smoked opium uh, and uh, found that objectionable and dangerous, decided to prohibit opium as a drug in the early 19th century, effectively. The problem was that that opium wasn't grown in China, but it was grown in India, which at the time was a British colony. And the British response to Chinese action trying to prevent that opium entering China was to launch a war of imperial aggression. In fact, two wars of imperial aggression. And these were classic 
imperialist uh, episodes. Uh, they were entirely shameful episodes on trumped-up excuses. Classic gunboat diplomacy, if you like. The wars uh, took place in the first Opium Wars dated 1839 to 1842. The second one, 1856 to 1860. Both were won by the imperialists. In the first one, the the British were alone. In the second one, they were joined by France for reasons that had nothing to do with opium. And the second Opium War resulted or led to the legalization of opium imports into China. So in a way, opium was forced, after all, uh, on the Chinese empire. Now, why, why does that concern us, you might ask? It concerns us um, because in the early 20th century, a group of nations, but specifically China, the United States, which had always opposed the opium wars and the opium traffic, and, Brit- and a repentant Britain, decided they should do something about the opium trade. So uh, you had uh, conferences and quickly followed by treaties that arose as an exercise and atonement for the opium wars. And the opium, these opium conferences uh, are the basis still today for anti-narcotics internationally, which itself is the basis for domestic anti-narcotics laws around the world, including the United States. I'm, I'm happy to elaborate, uh, but the Harrison Act is effectively the big piece, piece of um, American legislation, anti-drug legislation. It's the first big piece of federal legislation. There, there, were, there were some isolated state actions before that, but this big piece of federal legislation, and um, it was written in the aftermath of the Hague Conference. Um, you referred to this earlier, and I wanted to go back a little bit. Um, uh, early in the book, you talk about the many shades of prohibition. And I'd be curious, uh, Pierre, uh, about uh, a little more detail on that. How, do you, how would you describe these many shades or flavors, perhaps, of prohibition? So we can simplify them as a four-level system, if you like. So it could be four degrees. One is complete uh, legalization. So it's an environment in which all drugs are uh, permitted, uh, freely available through any sort of retail channel you care to talk about, whether to be used medically or recreationally. So this, in effect, is the system that prevailed in the United States and in most European countries and in Britain, certainly, and in fact, most of the world, before in the uh, up until the early 20th century and in the United States before the Harrison Act you then have a next level in which you restrict drugs to uh, medical uses that is still the case for some of the drugs that are identified as narcotics under drug legislation morphine for example you know most people in america or europe are you know sadly are likely to be administered morphine probably once in their lives just because they have an operation or, God forbid, they may have cancer, things like that. So morphine remains an essential medicine, but it's also a regulated drug, which means it's forbidden for recreational purposes. Then you can... uh, so, so we're talking about here uh, regulation of uh, restriction of drugs uh, to the medical sector so far, but purely through pharma laws, yes, pharmaceutical laws. A lot of other drugs, the pharmaceutical products, not just morphine, are restricted to pharmaceutical sales. You need a prescription to buy them, and you can only buy them through certain uh, regulated retail channels. And then you have health authorities nationally that pay attention to you know, what goes on with the pharmaceuticals. Obviously, there's FDA approval and so on and so on. But so far, you're only regulating these drugs as pharmaceutical products through your pharma laws. You can then add a... So, and this model has been, uh, by the way, uh, historically a model for regulating uh, narcotics, as we call them. So for instance, it was the prevailing model in France and Germany uh, already in the early 20th century, they were regu- these drugs were regu- regu- regulated through as normal pharmaceutical products. They were not allowed for recreational use, uh, but there were no extra penalties in particular compared to other pharmaceutical products. And that's in fact the next level: is you restrict drugs to the medical market, 
but you add a series of harsher penalties in case people breach the regulations, whether distributors, pharmacists, or people who are not pharmacists or drug dealers, or perhaps even the user. Yes, punish people for possession, uh, add to your pharma laws a set of fines, prison sentences, and so on, and criminal records, and so on and so on. And of course, the fourth level is total prohibition for any use whatsoever, medical or uh, recreational. And that is a level that has, in practice, still remains the case for marijuana under the 1961 Single Convention, which is the big treaty that regulates the trade and use of marijuana and the leg domestic legislation of marijuana around the world. Yeah. Or it's also the case of heroin under the 1961 Single Convention or in the United States under um, domestic legislation that was passed uh, earlier. I think it, from memory, 1925 or perhaps 24, something like that. Yeah, so you have these four levels. You have completely free market, total legalization, regulation through pharmaceutical laws, uh, pharma laws plus extra penalties, which is what we see in the, Har in the Harrison Act. Though the Harrison Act, these, uh, all the drugs were restricted to the medical sector, but they were still allowed medically. And then you have a complete ban for any use whatsoever, medical or recreational. And of course, there can be shades, yes? I mean, there are schedules, there are drug schedules, both in the drug treaties and in most domestic um, drug laws. So there are more shades and, of prohibition than you can have also. Another, another variation is, do you criminalize use or possession? Do you punish the drug user or do you only punish traffickers? A big question, a philosophical question also in my view, but a big practical question in terms of drug policies. Uh, but, but so, to simplify, we have these four levels and then there are added variations to these four levels of prohibition or legalization. At, at one point in the book, you describe as somewhat similar China's opium plague in the late 19th and early 20th century and America's current opioid epidemic. Uh, could you elaborate on that a bit? Uh, how are they similar or somewhat parallel? I was really making a quantitative point there, uh, trying to assess the gravity of the late 19th century Chinese opium epidemic it may sound like a somewhat esoteric point, uh, but it's important because that's the background to the big uh, conferences that started worldwide anti-narcotics uh, legislation prohibition, effectively. So it is useful to know what was going on or not going on. And in fact, and historians have been very... Uh, at odds over uh, how extensive that opium plague, as some called it, was or, or wasn't. So you have some people who've claimed that uh, you had 50 million dreadful opium addicts in China at a population of 400 million. And you have you know, people who've claimed that it was nothing really. It was all exaggerated by a bunch of Protestant missionaries and everything was totally fine, really. I come out a little bit in the middle in the sense that, um, well, first of all, both can't be true. There was either, because we do know, what we, one more thing, we, we don't know how many people smoked opium in China, but we know roughly, or at least at a maximum limit, how much opium was smoked in China around that time. And so either there were 50 million who were opium smokers, and they were light smokers who could not be described as addict, addicts, uh, or uh, they were all heavy smokers whose health was ruined and who were uh, tragically addicted, but then they cannot have been more than perhaps a million or two out of a population of 400 million. So that's one point. Um, so I came to the to, to make things up a little bit more graspable in terms of you know, how this may have looked to contemporaries. I looked to the American opioid epidemic because it's acute. It's in the news. It's something very dramatic. It's something that people would notice. At the same time, you can't quite say that it's crippling the entire United States, you know, economically or politically, which was some people said about China at the time. So that, hence the analogy that I use. How it's important to make one big caveat, which is that smoking opium is much less dangerous than injecting heroin, let alone fentanyl or some of the other opioids. So probably in early 20th century China, China, you saw far fewer deaths 
uh, direct deaths from, from drug addiction, from overdose, is what I'm talking about. Uh, on the other hand, you probably saw a graver social incidence in impoverished par- farmers, people selling their children, dying from hunger thing, or disease, things like that. Because obviously the level of wealth was far, 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 far inferior. And so you would have a, a, a very large population living already in very precarious conditions that obviously it didn't help if they then became opiumatics. So to what historical factors, given all this, to what historical factors would you attribute what I call America's and other places amnesia about opium and its risks? We seem to go through these cycles, and it's not just with opium. The same thing has happened in America with cocaine. Um, We go through these cycles. And how would you, uh, to what would you attribute what I call this historical amnesia about opium? Yes, so when I talk about amnesia, uh, I was thinking of the late 19th century, 20th century conditions in the U.S., under which opiates, uh, we were talking about mostly morphine at the time, there wasn't much heroin, a tiny bit of opium, but it wasn't what what people would typically uh, take as as a drug in the United States around that time, and then some cocaine as well. These products were basically freely distributed you could buy them at the drugstore pretty much anywhere uh, they were n- not legislated on or, or barely at all uh, manufacturers advertise these drugs so we we have uh kind of crazy looking actually they're kind of funny and you know so advertisements for cocaine you know as a product for kids you know, for for teething for example you give cocaine to your kids so they they, they you know they don't feel the pain uh, so that's the context, and um, there's reason, good reason to believe that there were, uh, there was a. I'm not sure substantial is the right word, but there was a there was a tangible population of people who were regular drug takers in the United States, and this and this population was much higher, uh, for example, than the French or the German population. Um, which, uh, just as a reminder, did have slightly tighter legislation because you, you could only procure these drugs through medical channels in France or Germany at the time. Uh, and so, so that's the background. Uh, but then, and then all, all, all that history all just was completely uh, forgotten or went away when the FDA faithfully approved OxyContin for uh, prescription as a pain medicine in 1995. Why and so uh, we, you know, which was the first step in the absolutely appalling opioid epidemic? Why did that happen? One, what you know, it would be a pat answer to say, well, people don't know history. <laughs> but as a historian, I, I don't want to sound pretentious or, or condescending, so I, I, I forget I said that. Uh, but um, I think more, perhaps, to the point, and importantly, generally with the war on drugs and anti-narcotics legislation. The result of it is that people, and by people I mean everyone, including politicians and legislators, tend to separate entirely the world of recreational drugs, forbidden drugs, narcotics. Yes, narcotics is a quaint term, but I love the term because it really knows what we're talking about. And pharmaceutical products. Creating uh, a false sense of comfort and a dangerous illusion. It's completely crazy that the FDA approved OxyContin in 1995. If I were elected American president, the first thing I'd do is fire the lot of them. OxyContin is just morphine in the pill. That's all it is. Why would you approve that as a a painkiller for chronic pain if you're not approving morphine already? It makes no sense. But but the the complete separation of these two worlds in the legislator's mind, in the regulator's mind, creates this full sense of comfort, which is paradoxical because actually all drugs, and it's one of the the big themes in the book, are what I called fallen medicines. They all started out as medicines. That's why they are branded narcotics now, unlike alcohol or tobacco, which did not start as medicines. It's the case of marijuana, which was a which was used medically in the 19th century. It was in the American pharmacopoeia and all the European pharmacopoeias. It's the case of cocaine, which had a, a, a meteoric um, 
campaign as a very useful medicine uh, after it was synthesized for the first time in 1860 for 20, 20, 30 years, 40 years. It was extremely useful. It was a, it was a big step forward for medicine at the time. Of course, of course, the case for morphine. Uh, it was the case uh, for heroin, which was invented as a medicine. Amphetamines, even LSD had a career as a psychiatric medicine. And so, you know, that's where they all come from. And that's how they were all originally banned. It started, well, these medicines aren't so good anymore. We're finding side effects. We think they're addictive. Uh, let's, uh, people, are, people are using them out for non-medical uses. So let's restrict them to medical use and let's add penalties to it, which the, there you have. You have, you know, you have uh, the definition of what becomes a narcotic, you know, how a pharmaceutical product, product becomes a narcotic. But if you're going to do that, it's good, it's completely absurd then to start approving what are really narcotics as um, as widely prescribed and advertised indeed drugs. It makes no sense. I want to um, take a little bit of a different tack with my next question. Um, Thomas De Quincey's Confessions of an Opium Eater is a well-known literary landmark published in 1822. How would you assess its significance in the perception of opium and the history of the drug war? Okay, there, there are two ways to, uh, there are two responses to that, um, depending on the uh, um, significant to whom. De Quincey's work is significant and is very useful to historians as a marker of widely held attitudes to drugs at the time in Europe or indeed in the United States because there's no reason to think that so attitudes were different there. The work provides a clue that uh, people were somewhat relaxed about drug taking. If we look at reviews of the book, most reviewers judge that, whereas taking opium on a regular basis was probably not a, pure, uh, a prudent thing to do. It wasn't as bad as heavy drinking. There was no notion really that it was addictive, at least in the medical sense. There may have been a layman's addiction, a sense of addiction, a sense that, well, if you take this drug, you will need to take more over time and it will be hard to quit it. Yes. Uh, but it wasn't viewed as a medical condition, which therefore required uh, medical intervention, potentially could become the basis for restricting the use and distribution of the drug to medical to the medical sphere, which is, once again, the first step towards prohibition. And uh, so we have a very valuable literary text reflecting the legislative, but also oh, so the legal, uh, but also the cultural environment at the time in Europe on drugs. Somewhat different, of course, from drug cultures around at the time in, 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 in other environments. I'm thinking of China, of course. And I'm also thinking of uh, parts of the Muslim world, namely Egypt, on hashish, which had a much less uh, good reputation at the time. But that's strange slightly off the subject. Now, for contemporaries, De Quincey uh, had, a, I think, in my opinion, a different significance. Contemporaries knew what they thought on drugs. It's not that people focused on drugs very much at the time. Uh, opium was widely used in, in, in Britain. There's a reason to think it was widely used in, in the United States as well. It wasn't a particularly expensive product. It was accessible to all social classes. It was used as a painkiller. I wouldn't say drugs at the time or opium in particular were big topics, but to the extent they were topics, people thought of opium as something that uh, non-Western people took, namely uh, Chinese people who smoked opium, uh, but, uh, but also Turks, Turkish people who ate opium uh, for recreational as well as medical purposes. The European opium, the British opium, uh, the American opium as well, mostly came from Turkey. That's where it was grown. And uh, De Quincey's book, Confessions of, a, of an English Opium Eater, shattered this notion. Suddenly you have uh, someone who is uh, English uh, who touts the fact that he's English in the very title of his book and who's taking opium for quasi-medical and eventually recreational purposes. So in that sense, it was a landmark at the time. 
At one point in the book, you talk about how in France, quote, established anxieties and the imagined threat seen through the prism of pre-existing dislikes made drugs seem dangerous, end quote. Does this model, in your view, apply to other places and times? And if so, how? Yes, that's a very good question. Uh, so the, the funny thing about France around that time is, as I said, not many people use drugs, and part, probably because they were limited to, to medical channels. But there was this major, and some French observers did uh, sarcastically observe on that, because there was this complete, completely strange panic in France about opium uh, and uh, how it was going to corrupt France. And, 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 and part of that came from colonial guilt mixed with a good dose of racism. France uh, owned Indochina as a colony, so modern-day Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. And uh, in order to fund its presence there, had had the brilliant idea of creating opium monopolies, encouraging people to smoke opium, but then the revenue would go to the colony, which funded the French uh, imperial presence there. And so, but there was some criticism of that matter manner of doing things in France. There was also great fear that French colonial officers or merchants would start to smoke opium in Indochina and then come back and spread the vice back home. And mixed with that was the idea that French were uh, the French situation was bad enough already because many French people were alcoholics, uh, which was taking a terrible toll on the population and in the, and ultimately on France's ability to take revenge on the demographically more dynamic Germany and recover the lost provinces of Alsace and Lorraine. Uh, which the country had lost in um, the war of 1870-71. So with this whole background is very peculiar. It has to do with Alsace-Lorraine, with, uh, with Indochina, with anti-Oriental racism, fear of corruption by these subject races and so on. It's very, this very weird and disturbing environment giving rise to anxieties which really reflected an extremely you know, prosaic, simple reality was that very extremely few people take, took drugs in France at the time. There's absolutely no reason to panic about anything. Now, to, to, of course, and it's, it, it is something that I think we do see periodically everywhere. Uh, just because you panic about drugs doesn't mean that there is a drug epidemic going on. And to take, uh, to take perhaps a non-Western example, you know, for once, I'd look at uh, Iran post-1979, which is uh, not shaped by the same anxieties at all. Uh, Persia, uh, later Iran, Persia, as it was called at the time, had become uh, an important, a significant opium grower in the late 19th, early 20th century. It had become a big supply of smuggled opium in the interwar. And then in the 1950s, under the Shah, uh, there had been a largely successful effort to stamp it out. And so a lot of eradication, uh, the usual mixed program of some eradication, some medical measures, attempts to rehabilitate uh, people who'd become dependent on opium at the time, leading to falling both drug production and use in Iran. It wasn't, um, the program wasn't completely successful, but the tentative evidence was that certainly Iranian opium production fell significantly in the, in the 60s and 70s. And uh, very likely also, although a lot of it was smuggled, so it's hard to tell, but very likely ostensibly uh, the number of people who use drugs, partly because there was a registration program for people to enter into medical care and so on, if they were dependent users. And so we have some indication of the numbers, even if not everybody registered, and they are much lower than they had been in the early 50s. And then in 1979, you have the the, the, the Iranian revolution followed by... uh, uh, a, a hard-hitting clerical regime uh, with uh, strong prejudices against intoxicants. Now, of course, under um, Muslim law or Muslim religion, opiates are not specifically forbidden. It's only alcohol as an intoxicant that's forbidden, but 
because drugs or intoxicants, they tend to suffer by connection with alcohol. And the uh, sorry, Ayatollah Khomeini's regime clamped extremely hard on drug use, hanging people from trees, and I mean, in, in very large numbers, punishing entire villages, and so on and so on. And actually, the policy backfired. Drug use began to skyrocket again in, in, in Iran, and it tended to be much harder drugs that people use, and, and still do. Iran remains a high-drug use country. Uh, people don't use opium uh, anymore. They, 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 they tend to go for morphine or heroin. You mentioned at one point in the book, this is a topic that I'm fascinated by, among many, uh, how laws passed in America in the 1950s were, quote, a response not to a serious drug problem, but to the absence of one, end quote. What, what might this imply about the motivations and the goals of these laws? Yes, well, the motivation, the goal was really to get to zero use or as close as possible to it. And the environment was that a number of the interwar treaties had temporarily been quite successful. I'm, I'm not sure we've got the time to get into the detail of that. Uh, but there had been extensive legislation through the League of Nations, new treaties regulating the drug trade, which, would, which had been successful at least in the late 20s and 30s for a variety of reasons, leading to reduced drug production, drug use. In the long run, it's very debatable how effective they were. Effectively, what they did was clamp down on uh, the legal manufacture of a number of drugs, in particular morphine and heroin, uh, cocaine as well, because that's where smuggled that originated at the time. And it took a while for the gangsters and the mafias of the world to figure out how to build their own labs. So in the meantime, you did see declining drug use around the world. Uh, there was also action in uh, Southeast Asia, where the drug monopolies in the style of the French monopoly that I mentioned were slowly unwound, eventually terminated. And then the last big uh, factor, of course, was the Second World War, which completely disrupted any sort of worldwide trafficking. And so in the post-war environment, the late 40s, early 50s, drug use around the world and in the United States, as in other places, was extremely low. And it looked as if uh, drug prohibition was working extremely well, extremely nicely, thank you. And so let's add another layer, because punishment clearly was appeared to be working, to finish the job. And the point is even more, I think, relevant uh, when we think of the 1961 single convention, because these extremely harsh American penalties, uh, which would insane numbers of years of prison on a first offense for tiny detention amounts, even the the, the American uh, Bar Association and Medical Association protested and said, this is crazy, is abusive, you need to stop, uh, although their appeals went unheard. Uh, but but these penalties were reversed later on. Some of them by Nixon, by the way. Uh, but but the point, uh, the, the, perhaps the wider point, is that this treaty that remains again the keystone to anti international and domestic anti narcotics legislation around the world, the 1961 UN led single convention, was passed in the same environment when people thought they had triumphed over drugs and drug addiction, and so. What we have is a system that's wonderfully adapted to an environment in which very few people take drugs. The question is whether it's still adapted to today's environment in which a very much larger number of people take drugs or have become addicted or drug dependent or whatever, or abuse drugs, if you want to use that term. Um sort of following on to that political dimension, um, there is a school of thought that says when we understand the drug war's true goals, 
That is, for example, control of minorities and dissenters, militarization of law enforcement, access to non-state actors. Uh, The drug war can be seen as a success in promoting these larger geopolitical goals. And I'm curious about your view of this school of thought. Okay, I'm a little bit puzzled. I'm not sure where that comes from, really. Uh, well, I might, I might yes. say it's it's a bit of an American conco- concoction. And this, I would say this first came up in the 80s and 90s in America in the movement to reform drug laws. Um, it, it also has some roots in the AIDS crisis in America in the 80s. So I think that's where it's coming from. It's really saying that the cover story, if you will, for the war on drugs is just that. It's a, it's, it's a cover story. And actually, as politicians got more experience with this, they realized the political utility of the drug war. And they could not really be public about these goals. So that's, that's a bit of the context for the question. Okay. Well, that makes more sense. It still sounds a little bit fringe to me. Um, it, it, it ignores the, the point that drug prohibition is much older than that. Uh, so it seems to me to chime a little bit with the notion that it was all started by the evil Nixon. By the way, on the, on the evil Nixon, uh, it's worth mentioning that actually um, his war on drugs involved a very large budget for uh, healthcare, drug healthcare, rehabilitation, but also things such as what's called drug maintenance, which consists of giving alternative drugs to drug users, including a scheduled drug known as methadone. Uh, That was the initiative of Nixon's drug czar, Jerome Jaffe, who was a, a bold and progressive doctor, actually not at all a crusty old drug warrior. And Nixon's healthcare budget for drugs was bigger than his suppression budget. You know, that tells you something. In fact, it was, if I'm not wrong, uh, his administration was the last one to have a larger healthcare budget than a suppression budget in America. Uh, so, you know, there's all sorts of, um, I'm a bit worried about misinterpretation here. Uh, uh, drug warriors may be misguided, but my impression is that they are sincere. You know, also, obviously, if we take then how do you explain that you have committed prohibitionists in a whole variety of other countries, with completely different cultures and conditions? You know, I'm not going to even talk about totalitarian country like China. Uh, but, you know, what about Buddhist Thailand? You know, strongly prohibitionist country, historically. Uh, in fact, uh, their historians uh, have uh, come up with a 12th century Die law against opium, because opium interfered with Buddhist meditation practice, essentially, uh, ostensibly, and Buddhism underpinned Thai kingship. So, you know, I think looking at just the last 20 years, and of course, there are um, very problematic uh, and uh, sometimes even disturbing uh, racist connections, racist aspects to some of the drug laws and uh, the war on drugs. I'm not denying that. But that's not the same thing as to say that's the real motive behind drug prohibition. That's fair. Um, at one point in the book, you describe drugs as attractive to intelligence agencies. And I'd like you to talk a little bit more about the ways in which that works and the ways in which drugs and perhaps drug trafficking are, are attractive to intelligence agencies. What's the connection there? Okay, well, that's another slightly conspiracy theory area, but it is interesting and it is, uh, it is supported by um, history, for sure. Uh, there is a very courageous and serious American historian whose name I'm looking for, Alfred McCoy, who's um, written, sometimes even at personal risk, uh, but certainly who's under, undertaking huge research and, and gone through hu- a huge amount of material on the CIA involvement 
in Southeast Asian uh, drug, the, the Southeast Asian drug trades and drug trafficking. But uh, certainly the CIA has not been the only agency that's been di- more or less directly tied to, uh, to, to, to drug trafficking. In fact, the CIA has been rather less directly tied to drug trafficking because the CIA, even if you follow McCoy, uh, have uh, provided certain transport facilities to allies who were funding guerrilla war efforts based on opium, uh, but they were never involved in the traffic themselves. They, you know, they, they may have closed their eyes on it when it was convenient, uh, but they, 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 they didn't actually sell drugs themselves. Unlike uh, the French <laughs> Secret Service, the SDECE, uh, which very, very clearly uh, was a partner in the French Connection. You've heard of the French Connection? Yes, those were people were French uh, gangsters, mostly Corsican banks, gangsters, were buying opium in Turkey, refining it in uh, southern France, and shipping the heroin to the United States and other American countries. And we find a lot of members, a lot of gangsters in the in the in, in the French Connection who were SDCE agents, and uh, one of them was arrested and said, "Well, I yes, I have heard, but that's you know, I was instructed by the agency to do that." And it was a bit embar- eventually the French state just clamped down because it just became too embarrassing. Uh, and of course, the other uh, spy agency has been the Pakistani ISI, which was knee deep. In the uh, Afghan and uh, Pakistani, but then later Afghan heroin trade. If we look at more conceptual reasons why we might see this, I mean, apart from the so it's exciting from a conspiracy theory point of view, but are there reasons that make that likely to happen? And I, and I, I can think of three. One is first of all. Uh, the drug dealers, international drug dealers, will typically be violent men or at least uh, men who like adventure and risk, who live in the shade. And you could see the same thing, say the same thing as spies. And so here's the, you know, the, 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 the people from the SGCE would be a good example. The, the second factor, uh, making drugs an interesting tool in, in spycraft is that they have a high value per, per weight. They're very portable. Uh, they can be sold pretty much anywhere for a high price. And so they're a great source of extra budgetary funds. Yes. And they were, so the cocaine trade was, became somewhat, somehow embroiled in the Iran Contra affair. This is not an illustration uh, of, uh, of this uh, sort of thing uh, at work. And the third reason, in my opinion, is that you typ- typically see drugs grown uh, and trafficked, not always, uh, but often in. Uh, failed states or, 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 or states faced with a breakdown, in, a significant breakdown in state authority. Examples would be Afghanistan, of course, for the last 30 years, but also Colombia, which faced uh, less so now, but for 20 years faced an extremely tough insurgency. Uh, but these states also happen to be states in which um, intelligence agencies are more likely to intervene, precisely because... Uh, they are failed states or, or states potentially on the way to failure. Um, along the lines of your second explanation for that, I wanted to follow up um, with this question. Um, most Americans, if you were to ask them, would say that enormous sums of money have been expended on the drug war. And you assert in the book that the deck is and has been stacked against enforcement and presumably these high level of spent this high level of spending. So how would you reconcile these two concepts? That's a very good point. The they, they are large sums. Um but to be successful, they would probably require to be, they probably need to be far larger by a significant multiple. And so if we can talk numbers, so if we look at the quarter century of the, the most the spectacular phase of the war on drugs abroad, so this is when Pablo Escobar was shut down, there were numerous operations in South America and so on and so on, the post-Nixonian part of the war on drugs, 1982-2004, the budget for foreign drug suppression, the American budget for foreign drug suppression, was $45 billion. That's about $2 billion annually, which, you know, 
probably is a large sum of money, except that uh, in the year 2000, estimates are that the wholesale value of drugs sold worldwide, I'm not talking about the retail value, the wholesale, because the retail is not strictly comparable because here you have street prices and so on, domestic enforcement, so on, was $94 billion per year, per year. So we're talking 50 times what America was spending on drug suppression abroad. So, of course, I realize that um, other states were involved, notably Latin American states, but actually the, by far the biggest budget was the American budget. So here we have a problem of means. In war, money matters. And if you're spending 2% of the enemy is spending, you're not going to win, are you? <laughs> so if we look at another set of numbers, um, by another measure, I have this number that measures the, uh, the, the, the cost of drug enforcement worldwide. So this includes policing, this includes prisons and so on, incarceration worldwide. And that's $100 billion per year. This time, this, it's an annual figure. Now, that's today, not to the year 2000, or roughly today, or a few years back, of course, but today. The size of the worldwide street value market, which was, you know, this, so this is, you know, how much the, the, the opposition is, is making versus how much, you know, the states around the world are spending is at the very least 400 billion and probably more in the round of probably more in the ballpark of 500 billion dollars. So once again, here again, even if we count all the costs of the, maintaining these people in prison, police forces, arrests, judicial systems, and foreign drug suppression, the lot. You're only, in inverted commas, at 100 billion, whereas they've got 500 billion. So it's not enough. If your goal is to you know, win the war on drugs, if you think it's winnable and you, you're going to win it, you need to spend more, much more. You need to spend more than the opposition. Maybe a trillion would be a good number. Right. And of course, then... I'm being facetious. Yes, I'm, be, I'm being uh, provocative for the sake of it. But this is what I meant. Right. And even then, this is a separate topic, but even then, that level of spending would not guarantee a significantly different result. But that's 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 a different that's a different question. But I want to I want to sort of follow up um, because you've talked about supply, um, focusing on sources of supply. And my question is a bit of a hypothetical one. Uh, do you believe that a focus on demand reduction would have been or could be more successful than a supply side focus of the drug war? Now, you could you could say that, well, that's what Nixon was trying to some degree in 1971 with methadone maintenance and uh, similar programs. And do you believe that uh, an extended focus on demand reduction, which would also imply much greater availability of treatment, would have been or could be more successful than the supply side focus that we have seen. All right, there's uh, there's a lot to unpick there. Uh, there's uh, there actually is quite a lot being spent on on demand reduction around the world, including in the United States. It's true that, to my knowledge, the federal budget is bigger on suppression. But it's not as though nothing is being spent on, on demand reduction. What I'm pausing slightly is there's a, there's, a, there's a little bit of jargon involved here. Uh, because people talk about demand reduction and they talk about harm reduction, which are two different things. And demand reduction actually is a prohibitionist term. So it's the term favored by... Uh, the big UN agencies, for example, who advise and run on uh, yes advise ad, ad, advise on the anti narcotics uh, on, on anti narcotics laws and systems and actions and programs, um, there is a very large agency named UNODC based in Vienna that that does uh, uh, specifically that, and uh, they are quite big on harm reduction, which in the jargon means dissuading people from taking drugs. Uh, whether through information campaigns or through directing them towards rehab, which goes uh, alongside suppression as such. Uh, then you have harm reduction, which is connected, but um, takes a somewhat different view in the sense that it is more pessimistic 
as to the chances of persuading a large number of people uh, not to take drugs in the first place. And so this is where maintenance comes in. It's like, well, folks, information campaigns don't work because they just don't listen. Or maybe they work, but they only go so far, and drug population, drug using population is still, still rising. And so we need to reduce harm, meaning we need to re- reduce all the harmful effects, really, of drug prohibition. So it's needle exchange programs. It's uh, perhaps supervised injection rooms. It's providing alternative drugs that are less dangerous than heroin or fentanyl, such as methadone to people, but providing them not with the aim of rehab, but providing potentially as something permanent or, or to be taken for a very long period of time. Uh, so to, I'm not sure really answering your question. Uh, demand More demand reduction, I think a lot is being done in demand reduction already. More harm reduction, uh, yes, I, I, I believe uh, that would be, it's working in, in a lot of countries. And it's worth it's worth doing more because what else are you going to do? Uh, just drug use is, is keeps expanding in, in in a number of countries and in the U.S. obviously, and it's become extremely dramatic in the U.S. and it's a cause of dreadful mortality. American life expectation is now something like four years lower than the typical uh, European country, and, and and out of that, three years. Are due to opioids. It's completely crazy. I mean, America is um, you know, the most advanced country on earth, or, or pretty close. It has no business having a life expectancy for a year behind the average European country. It's terrible, and I, I believe uh, harm reduction would make a big difference. I want to um, close with a question about um, the international drug control regime. Um, given your emphasis on that and its clear importance in the war on drugs, how do you see this regime evolving in the next 5, 10, 15 years? We as historians do not like to predict, I know, but um, I'm curious about your thoughts about how you see this regime evolving. Um, You talked about um, the last decade being a serious challenge to this regime, and I wonder what you might uh, anticipate um, going forward. That's a great concluding question. Um, I'd say uh, there is a a threefold challenge right now to the uh, anti-narcotics global order, and by extension, obviously, domestic drug laws. The first is marijuana legalization in two countries, Uruguay and Canada, and of course, also in a number of American states, with uh, perhaps under the Biden administration, federal legalization, we shall see. But even if we don't see, uh, we already have, uh, with uh, the legalization of marijuana, a significant challenge to the to the the the, the, the international anti-narcotics order because it just isn't compatible with the drug treaties and Canada and Uruguay are simply in violation of the treaties. There's no way around it. Germany, by the way, may well legalize. The Schulz government has said it that it would legalize marijuana. If it does so, you could see a, a number of European countries following. So that's the first challenge. The second challenge comes in the form of uh, what are known as NPS, which are uh, new psychoactive substances, and they're effectively synthetic substitutes to the established drugs. Uh, The problem with them from the perspective of the drug laws and drug scheduling is that they change constantly. And so it's, it's, it's very difficult to add them to the schedules and therefore... Uh, keep sweeping them under uh, drug legislation. The third challenge is that a number of Latin American statements have specifically said that they are fed up with the war on drugs, Uh, whether in uh, Mexico, whether in Uruguay, and more recently the newly elected president of Colombia uh, have said that there's simply too much violence involved. It does not work for these countries, which are... uh, not even significant uh, users, whose population is not even significant users of cocaine. Cocaine use is not negligible in Latin America, but it's much lower than in uh, the USA. And so they are questioning the um, the war on drugs and the and the and anti narcotic the anti narcotics order as it's being 
run. I'm skeptical that we will see, nevertheless, any reform to the drug treaties. There's just too much resistance. It's too hard. It's just too hard. Many countries around the world are dead opposed to any sort of change. Uh, A number of Asian countries, for example. Not even mentioning the complicated American politics on the topic. What we might see, however, what we're already seeing to some degree, is a partial creeping hollowing out of the of the international drug order through Myanmar legalizations, and we will see more such episodes. New Zealand narrowly voted against, I think it was last year or the year before, but we will see more legalizations. We might see it in Jamaica, some or perhaps South Africa. In some non-European, or if we like non-Western countries, uh, the NPS remaining remain a significant challenge. I'm not sure the Latin American countries will move the marker so so much at forums such as the UN assemblies or even in the direct relation with the United States, but they might start dragging their feet in practical terms. So that that would be my prediction for what it's worth. Well, I think it's worth a lot. And Pierre, I'd like to thank you for being here today. And I'd like to thank you for a book that helps us understand the drug war's many dimensions. I want to thank as well our listeners on the New Books Network. Take care, and we will talk again soon.